Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be discussing this topic of childhood malnutrition in our communities and efforts that have been made to tackle the issues and what people, each of us, can do to be part of the solution as well. We have someone that spent many years studying this issue and approaches to tackle the issue. She's driving awareness to this um, problem in our community and she I'm glad to have her talk to us about our work on this episode. Her name is Shaman Russell. She is a professor emeritus in humanities at the Western New Mexico University and associate on the faculty of Antioch University and the author of the book Within Our Grasp, Childhood Malnutrition Worldwide and the Revolution Taking Place to End It. If you're wondering what childhood malnutrition is all about, how it affects us here in America, and what each of us can do to tackle this problem, well, listen on. Shama has a lot to share with us. So I'm glad to welcome on this episode, Shaman Russell. Shaman, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's really great to be here. Yeah. So we'll get started. Uh, I'd like you to just tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your journey, and how you got to this point where you're driving this awareness of this important issue in our community. Right. Well, um, you know, I'm a longtime environmentalist and a science writer. Uh, and that's my academic background, and that's my, my passion, I guess. But I have long believed that the goals of the environmentalist and the goals of the humanitarian are aligned. I think we can have it all, you know, that, that people are part of a healthy earth, and a healthy earth, you know, needs healthy people. So I became interested in hunger, I, I suppose, when I was pregnant with my first child, especially hunger in children. It seemed impossible that, that we would have hungry children in a world of so much plenty. I finally started writing about it uh, in the early 21st century, a, a book called Hunger and a Natural History. I met all kinds of interesting people working to combat malnutrition, all kinds of scientific progress. A, a revolution was starting then of how to end worldwide childhood malnutrition and stunting. Then, uh, just in you know, 16 years later, I revisited all of that, and that that's the book within our grasp. It's a hopeful, 
book because I really believe it is within our grasp and so do other people of, of ending childhood malnutrition and stunting. And of course that's true in America as well as around the world. That's great, that's really great. And it's so interesting to see that um, people don't think much about these things, but it's good to see that some people are working hard to solve the problem of hunger. And also, um, it's also good to see changes in our communities every single day. I know we still have a long way to go, but you know, the truth is a lot of people out there, when they hear the word malnutrition or they hear the word hunger, they don't think of America. They think about um, somewhere in Africa or some other developing countries around the world. But I want to share your insights on what you've seen and what you've observed when it comes to hunger malnutrition as a whole across the globe. Right, right. And you know, I can talk about three things that are common in rich countries like America and in other uh, poor countries around the world. One is food insecurity. You just don't know when your next meal is gonna be. You're just not, you don't have that emotional and psychological sense that, that you're safe. And the pandemic has certainly made that worse in America. Uh, in my state of New Mexico, um, throughout America, one in five children are food insecure. Uh, it's grown to one in three during the pandemic and during times you know, of stress. Around the world, of course, food insecurity for other children is, is more severe and the consequences are more severe. But still there's that emotional sense of I'm not safe. I don't know if I'm going to have enough food. Actually, food insecurity uh, can lead, and malnourishment in the first years of life actually leads to increased obesity as an adult. There's a direct uh, connection between poverty and, 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 and overweight. And here in America, uh, children who live in food deserts tend to become overweight. You know, their, their, own, their main access to food is fast food, overprocessed, um, you know, convenient but cheap. Uh, and around the world, of course, uh, childhood obesity is increasing everywhere. Most obese children under the age of five are not in rich countries, they're in developing countries. Um, and, and, child, and adult obesity is certainly increasing too because they're connected, they're connected. And then the third uh, similarity is mineral and vitamin deficiencies. That's a huge problem. Two billion people around the world are deficient in minerals like iron and, and zinc. And even here in America, about 15% of pregnant women are iron deficient. About 15% of toddlers are iron deficient. That's, that's startling because iron is so connected to neurological development. So when we have iron deficient children, we are going to see problems in cognitive and learning disabilities for the rest of their lives. So that's, if that's happening here in a country that has so many resources and so much education, you can imagine that it's how much worse it is in other places. Yeah, I can, you can only imagine. I know the interesting thing is when you think about obesity, you really don't think much about food insecurity or think about um, malnutrition. You know, a lot of time when you think about malnutrition and hunger, you think about a very skinny child that has been starved and, and you know, you just think differently. Whereas um, 
Obesity is a, a huge indication of a problem that needs to be solved. And um, it's good that you highlighted all those issues. That was meant to be my follow-up question, but it's good that you highlighted all the medical challenges that come with malnutrition and how it affects the quality of life of children as they grow. But what can parents do to support kids that are malnourished and to work towards reversing this? Right, right. Well, here in America, I mean, of course, with your own children, you can be educated. You can understand the role of vitamins and minerals in the body, which we really haven't always understood. I mean, the scientific community really in the 20th century, the last half grew to understand so much more. So you're part of an ongoing evolution of understanding kind of the miracle of vitamins and minerals. So you can, with that education, you can make sure that your children have a diverse diet. Uh, you can make sure that if, if they're lacking it, uh, sometimes you, that they have supplements or they have fortified food, uh, education in terms of exercise, all of that. So you're that as a parent, you are that caretaker who's aware, who's conscious. Um, and we all know children are, are picky and, and they like bland diets and, and they like a not diverse diet. So you do the best you can as we all do as parents. To help other children, you know, here in America, we are starting. I think the child care tax credit is going to be huge in terms of helping um, parents in poverty uh, have more money for diverse diets. I think we're looking at our food pantries. We're looking at our at our uh, WIC and our SNAP policies, and we're saying this is a basic right. Parents should not have to worry about do I have enough money for medicine and rent or do I have enough money for food. So I think we're becoming a a uh, society, I think, that is more generous. And it's cost effective to feed your children. It's cost effective to have a prosperous generation that, that won't have health problems. You know, in terms of obesity, that that is now recognized by the World Health Organization as a form of malnourishment. We absolutely know that it leads to uh, uh, serious diseases uh, in adult and that those are a great drain on our resources and on our well-being. You know? So again, it's very cost-effective to prevent that too. And again, um, being overweight as an adult, being overweight even as a child is, is very much related or can be to poverty and it can be to food insecurity. In general, we are becoming more educated every day. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we understand that you, we, if you're a parent, look at your, your child's school lunches. What are they serving in the public school? What are they giving their kids for breakfast? Um, many, many schools have free lunches and breakfasts. That's where your children is getting you know, quite a bit of his or her nutrition. It's kind of your job to be an activist too and to be an advocate, I think, for good nutrition. That's absolutely true. You know, I, I also believe I share, I share your opinion on that because I feel we all have a role to play. We all have a very active role to play in um, changing the dynamics uh, when it comes to food and health. You know, um, one of the things that I was just uh, thinking about uh, recently is when we talk about the problems of obesity or talk about starvation all in America, first and foremost, I think why would citizens of one of the most prosperous countries in the world struggle with hunger? How did we get to this point? What are some of those loopholes that led us to where we are today? Well, I, 
you know, one of the ways we solve, we had some really severe malnutrition among our children in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And one of the ways we solved it was for, was with the school lunch program. Mm -hmm. And and eventually that became something that was just uh, a, a kind of a right that a child went to school and if you couldn't afford your school lunch, it was given to you. Um, in other areas, we just don't consider food a right in this country or we haven't before. In some ways, we also don't consider healthcare a right. Somehow it has to be uh, earned, you have to pay for it. Um, so that's, that's a part of our society that is changing and can change, that, that we start, start understanding that there are vulnerable populations. The elderly are quite vulnerable or can be in the country if they're just living on social security and are not getting the food they need. Children are quite vulnerable. Uh, disabled can be vulnerable. I, I think we have to accept that 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 not everyone has is, that these resources in America have not been shared equitably. Hmm. We have to protect our immigrant populations and their children. We have to protect uh, you know impoverished populations, elderly populations. I think we're getting there. Actually, in a way, I think the pandemic has brought us together to realize that we are one society, <laughs> that we all affect each other, right. that that. And that we're a wealthy society. We we can spend billions in in pandemic relief. Right. We can spend the same billions to solve childhood malnutrition. Here in America, we could do it pretty quickly. You know, worldwide is going to take uh, more time, but it's still absolutely doable because we have a lot of wealth in this in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I was thinking about it. What you just said. A number, of, a number of the responses you gave to solving this problem seem to be tied to policy changes, that we need to make some policy changes. And if, um, if a policymaker or um, a community leader is listening to this podcast right now, and you can advise, I advise him based on what you found in your research and your writings, what would be three important advice you give them in terms of, oh yeah, we can, under this problem, but this is one, two, three things that you can do or two. What you know, just just kind of like um, giving them tips on this is this is some areas where we can make strong changes and change the dynamics of people, especially low-income families. Wow. Well, that's a question I hadn't quite prepared for, but I'm going to I can I'm going to go right into it. You know, the first advice I would give is something I was told. Uh, by people working who I respect in the larger field of worldwide malnutrition. And that is listen to the people who are suffering from malnutrition. Ask them what they want. Ask them what would work for them. So as much as I could say childcare tax credit is a wonderful idea, I'm glad we're doing that. Uh, national daycare so that working parents could take their children to uh, a daycare they trusted that was affordable, affordable national daycare. Um, you know, making WIC and SNAP and all our, uh, our, our food programs easy. Don't make them shameful and hard to, hard to use, make them easy. But before any of that, I think I would have to say, talk to people who are feeling um, insecure and ask them, what do they need? What do they want? What, because, you know, it can't come from on top. 
it has to come from the bottom too and it has to come from all of us in a spirit of generosity and compassion and also of, of self-interest it's it's not in our interest to have impoverished uh hungry malnourished children or or adults either they're you know later on they they have enormous health costs they're it's it's wrong um, economically as well as spiritually and ethically and morally. That's so true. That's absolutely so true. So you know, one of the things uh, that stood out to me during this conversation is the fact that um, malnourishment comes with a lot of um, health um, health consequences or um, undesirable health outcomes. Yes. So uh, there are times that. Um, parents do not even belong to the category of low income, um, low income or uh, poor families or, you know, families that typically tackle or deal with this problem of hunger. However, they could still have children that are malnourished, especially if the, if the child is a picky eater, would not have, um, would not have most of the meals or most of the, most of the, popular meals with the, the entire family. What can this uh, parents or parents in this type of situation do to ensure that their children are not malnourished? What are some practical tips that they can do to ensure that their kids are not malnourished? Well, we live in a, in a pretty unusual situation in American history. Hmm. I mean, we are surrounded not only by very high calorie uh, foods, that lead to obesity. Uh, we're also surrounded by many, many empty calorie foods. I mean, think of going and you're traveling on the road and you go into a, you know, a, a gas station convenience store. It is extraordinary. There, you know, 300 different kinds of chips, 400 different kinds of candies, you know, 800 different kinds of sugary drinks. And that seems to be the only thing in the store lined up and down. And they have been designed by experts to appeal to us. You know, they have been designed to you eat one and then you want more. So they are absolutely suited to our paleolithic desire for sweet and for fat and for crunch. So parents are up against a lot because I think what a lot of parents are up against is that prolific amount of, of processed empty calorie um, uh, food that leads to not only obesity, but to malnourishment because it's replacing the carrots and the, and the potatoes and the zucchinis and the hamburger, you know, it's replacing good food uh, with a lot of empty calorie food. So what can parents do? Well, I think they can sit down and, and think about how often their child is exposed to that, how often it's in their own home. Um, they shouldn't feel too badly about it. They have to understand they're against, you know, that this is the reality of our food life here in America, surrounded by, um, by high-tech food in a way that's designed to, to bring us in. And I'm not a purist. I'm, I, it's not like I never eat Doritos or, or don't like a candy bar or, or chocolate cake, but we have to be pretty vigilant about not having that be the preponderance of the food we eat. Mm -hmm. And let's admit it, if you're a child, it would be. You know, it, you know, you would just go from candy bar to cornets to Doritos to because it's so appealing. Mm -hmm. So parents have to, I think, really uh, 
go through a child's day and say, when are they exposed to that? And how can I lessen that exposure? Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to start at breakfast. What's, you know, do, does my school have a lot of vending machines that they're using that has a lot of this kind of food? What happens after, after dinner? And they talk to your child too. You know, I mean, again, that's that education. Explain them. Yeah. Um, so one of the key things that we're thinking about is when parents, parents have picky eaters and it's almost very, it's something very common today that kids are picky. But the downside of that is when kids are picky with food and parents are not being careful about it, it could lead to malnourishment. I just thought if you could share your thoughts on how parents or what parents can do to ensure that uh, their children are not picky eater. By this, I mean, uh, their parents that live uh, their middle class or uh, even high income earners, but have children that are, are picky. So in those kind of situations, you want to prevent malnutrition and there are practical steps that you can take. What do you think those steps could be? Well, first of all, my heart is with those parents. I've had that in my own life. Uh, I don't think you can always blame yourself. You should look and see if there's any stressors around eating, if, if part of that is emotional or psychological. Um, I think I think parents should understand that we are, live in a culture surrounded by calorie-rich, empty-calorie food that's very appealing. And I think you can also talk to your child about food. Talk to your child about the 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 miracle of how we eat food and it becomes who we are. Talk to them about the digestive system. Talk to them about how science works. That doesn't work so well with a two-year-old. I understand that. You know, that's why we're always doing the choo-choo train. This is, and this isn't just here in America, it's all over the world that, that children, young children prefer a bland diet. Uh, and they, they, they're conservative eaters. And, and that can continue into their later childhood. So I think you have to be aware of it. You have to, to look at it as a whole. You have to look at who your child is. You have to see what you have in the home. You have to see what else your child is exposed to. Um, try and make food fun, but try and make carrots fun, not just, uh, you know, we're going out to the ice cream treat fun. That's absolutely uh, great and very spot on too, because when you have little kids, a lot of those things you can relate with it. And, um, and yeah, it's something remarkable when parents can master helping kids to embrace the beauty of good um, nourishing meals. So yeah, let's transition to talk a bit more about your book. Uh, tell our audience a bit more about your book, um, your findings, and just dive deep a little bit more into what you've done with, um, in our, within our grasp. I know a lot of people care about this subject. They see it around them. They see, uh, they see the different work that people are trying to do to solve the problem. And I believe that you shedding more light on what you've done and what you've found will help and inform the next steps for them as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I do think that people see those images of starving skeletal children on television and their heart goes out and then they feel helpless. It's so big, that child is far away. If they could, they would take that child into their kitchen and feed them soup, but they can't. And so that sense of helplessness and that sense of distance, I think sometimes makes people turn away from the subject as a whole. 
And that was partly what I wanted to do with this book is, is, is make, is make it hopeful because it is hopeful and, and make it real and something that we can all get in and engage and, and change. I was surprised myself at the extent uh, those children we see on TV that are, are skeletal or, or actually it's called wasting and, and they do need immediate intervention or, or they will die. But another form of childhood malnutrition, which is much more common, affects 25, almost 25% of our children. Almost a quarter of the world's children are what we consider stunted. And that means that in the first years of life, they haven't gotten the food and nutrients. So their growth has faltered. And a stunted two-year-old becomes a stunted 10-year-old, becomes a stunted adult. Um, and this all has to do with that lack of food in the first thousand days of the first years. Interestingly, part of it is that very problem you were talking about, picky eaters. Uh, Childcare in, in families that might normally have some diverse diet, they tend traditionally to feed their children this kind of bland porridge or this bland uh, gruel, because that's what children naturally like. So, so it's a problem that you, that when your children don't have a diverse diet, not only all around the world, you know, not only in America, but around the world. Anyways, a quarter of our children, so stunting is shorthand for all kinds of adult problems, learning disabilities, just this loss of potential. That all sounds so awful. I never would have written an entire book. I never would have spent years on research that felt hopeless. There was so much hope in this because people are working to solve it and they found the ways to do it. We now have the, the knowledge about science, about vitamins and minerals, about empowering women, about sanitation. We have this holistic approach that we can do. Uh, I was so inspired by the people working on this. Uh, I was inspired by the wonder of the body. So in the end, this became a subject full of light you know, not just dark, a subject full of hope, uh, a subject that uh, full of action. You know, that's what we need to do now. We just need to take action and, and we'll have such a better future if a quarter of our children are, are, are energized or are, are nourished. Sorry. That's really great. And one of the key things that you mentioned is we need to take action, you know, and I've been thinking about it that um, the problem of hunger in, especially in America, let's just think about where we are currently. Uh, there are a number of people that are working on it and there's some things that are working. There's some things that are not working. I was just wondering if your research involved uh, the efforts to tackle this problem and um, if you could shed some light on what exactly is working? What can we do differently? And um, what's the way forward? Right. Well, I started the book with the history of the development of something called ready-to-use therapeutic food. So that was science and, and researchers coming together with just exactly severely malnourished children needed. And it also helps prevent mal malnutrition. And it's kind of a packet of fortified uh, paste and uh, you can send it home with the mothers and fathers. That's been a kind of revolution. One thing we need is a lot more of that. We only reach about 25% of the children who need it because it's costly. So yes, we need money, we need money. But people have also discovered uh, all the things that work have to work together because as well as that, you need to empower women. You need to have the women in the household have the power to make decisions, 
if more money's coming in, they spend it on the child, not on anything else. They have uh, education opportunity to work. So that's a big part of it. You need sustainable agriculture. A lot of um, uh, uh, places where people are malnourished or that depend on smallholder farmers. You need to empower the smallholder farmer. You need fortification of food. So we, we have a suite of things that work. So what I would say too, to someone who wants to help, um, know that there's not any one thing to do. You could, and let's say you wanted to help hunger in America. You wanted to help childhood hunger in America. You don't have to just do one thing. Um, you can give money to people who are working on policy. Um, you can give money to people who are at your local food pantry. You can volunteer at your local food pantry. You can give money to, to uh, people who are, are feeding children during the summer. You know, so there's this whole range of things you can do. Uh, giving money is one of them. Volunteering is one of them. Educating your own children and family is one of them going into your school system, finding out what's happening, be an active, you know, parent or board member. There, since there's so many things to do and they all work collectively, find the one that grabs your imagination. Find the one that makes you feel, um, you know, energized. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, I, and it's also great to know that um, there's a lot of organization in place as well that people can go to to support, whether support financially or volunteer with to uh, to show their own, uh, to do their own part as well in tackling this problem. One thing I often say is that uh, the problems we have in our food system today, be it obesity, be it hunger, is not something one person can solve. It's something that we all coming together, collaborating and supporting one another, it, can successfully solve. We need everybody to chip in. And it, nothing is too small, nothing is too big. Everyone coming together to play their role will ensure that the next generation will not have to face the same problem our generation is facing right now. Thank you so much for making time to connect today and just share your story. And um, we're really, really excited uh, to learn more from you. I look forward to connecting with you again uh, in the future. Oh, thank you, Julie. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.